The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Psalms, Psalms chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. Um, and you can follow along in your Bible. Also, if you need notes, it's in the phone app or on your device. Uh, Psalm chapter 2, the title of the message is Jesus is King. And that is a title, amen. And that's a title long before Kanye's album. Um, it's what the Bible has told us for thousands of years. It's what our heart cries for. It's what our heart knows. Verse 1, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heaven, heavens laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much again just for your presence here. We thank you for this glorious night, the, the temperate weather. We thank you, Lord, that you have truly shined down upon us. Your face is upon us. And I pray right now we would hear you speak. It's a word of exhortation. It's a word of conviction. It's a word that should bring us to a place of absolute humility and surrender before you, but also a place of absolute comfort that you are king. You are the king of our hearts, the king of our lives, the king of this universe. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 In the Stone family, I don't know about yours, but we watch the trilogy, Lord of the Rings, at least twice a year, and usually the extended edition. Yes, we are nerds, okay? We'll just admit to it, and we watch The Hobbit often as well. But there's something about those films that we love. It's the timeless tale of good versus evil, about a time that once was really good and had gotten really bad, this time of tyranny and oppression. But there's something in that story, if you've ever read it or seen the films, it's a story that there once was a great king and he's gone. And when he was here, everything flourished. And there's whispers that this king is alive. There's whispers that this king will sit on the throne. And when this king sits on the throne of Gondor, everything will be made right. And Tolkien said this in the line of his novel, the hands of a king are the hands of a healer. And so shall the rightful king be known. Why do we like stories like this or stories like Robin Hood? Robin Hood tells the story of the wrong king sitting on the throne and the true king is away somewhere and everybody's waiting until Richard the Lionheart comes back. When the Lionheart comes back, everything will be made right or the tales of Camelot and on and on I could go, whether it's Arthur or Aragorn or the Lionheart, there's these stories about a king, about these mythical characters, these people who when they rule, there's justice, there's fairness. 
There's prosperity. There's kings that rule in benevolence. There's kings that have the people's best interests, not hoarding power. And all these things, we, we, we resonate. We are drawn to these stories. Why? Because they, they speak to a deep need within us. They speak to something that is actually true that the Bible reveals to us. It's what Ecclesiastes says, eternity in our hearts. It's a memory trace of something that once was and something that we know we desperately need, a king who sits not on the throne of Sacramento or D.C., but in Jerusalem, ultimately, who rules and reigns and covers the earth. In our series uh, through Psalms over the last several months called Heart Cries, a lot of the Psalms we've been looking at deal with our personal walk, our, 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 our own emotions as we process them, as God is the good shepherd and he leads us, as he guides us, as he forgives us, as he speaks to us. Well, here in Psalm 2, we shift a little bit, but it's still just as much of a blessing. We, we, we have this big view of the cosmic king, of king, we know King Jesus, who rules and reigns, whom God has said, you are my anointed. The heathen rage, the nations plot, they're doing their own thing, but God says, I have set my king on my holy hill, my anointed one. And it's a king who is unlike any king this world has ever known. He's a king who is both kind and fierce, just and good. He's a hard-hitting king. Daniel said when he walked by my office, Psalm 2 is the MMA Jesus, and I kind of laughed at that. He's the Jesus who is in control. He's the Jesus you don't mess with, but he's the Jesus whom you love and gladly submit to. Psalm 1 began, we looked at this months ago, blessed is the man who avoids this. So many of the Psalms speak of the blessing, the blessing of being forgiven, the blessing of having your sins not imputed or counted against you, the blessing of avoiding sin altogether. There's a blessing here that comes at the end of chapter 2, and it's the blessing of knowing this king and submitting your life to this king and actually finding refuge in this king. And we'll talk about that. And I love it that God is interested in ruling and reigning, but he's also interested, we see over and over, in, in blessing, inviting us, telling us what it means to live a blessed life. Avoid this, do this, submit to my king. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. And so we'll see, number one, there's a true king. Uh, number two, we rebel against this king. The, our hearts bent, our inclination, sadly, is to rebel, to mutiny against this king. But finally, why we need this king and practically how we submit and serve this glorious king. Well, Psalm chapter two, I think a lot of you realize or have known or have heard, it's one of what is called a messianic psalm, along with Psalm 22, Psalm 45, Psalm 72, and 110, certainly, and a few others that are very clearly not simply talking about an earthly sovereign or an earthly person, but they're foreshadowing and pointing us to someone far greater. And in these Psalms, when we read them, we see really two points of view or two horizons. We see, yes, there's a David, there's a Solomon type of person, but when we look carefully, we realize there's nobody that could really fulfill this. There's, these promises are too great. The fury's too great. The glory's too much to be an earthly person. They're pointing us to someone greater. As believers, we know who that someone is. And as we make our way through the psalm, you, you see that it's kind of broken up in, in four parts, almost four standards. There's three voices that are speaking to us. There's the voice of the narrator in one and three, kind of talking about the response of, of the nations, of these kings who are plotting a foolish, vain, and empty thing. And then in verses four through six, we see God the Father speaking. 
who addresses the nations, who speaks about his, his intentions and what he has done and what he will do. In verses seven through nine, we, we see the response of this anointed king as he recounts what the father had spoken to him. It's the voice of Jesus saying, today, the father said, you are my son, I have begotten you. And finally, verses 10 through 12, the narrator once again speaks and, and he exhorts us. How do we respond to this king? And so we see this, the whole message is really about the kingship of Jesus, the kingship of God's anointed, the one that God has set on the throne and what our hearts tend to do, what our hearts were made for and really what our hearts uh, need to do if we're really going to thrive and flourish. We see that this doesn't point to David, it doesn't point to Solomon, but truly a greater one, the one whom God said, you are my son, all the ends of the earth are your possession. To the one who was worthy to open the scrolls, to the one in all of Revelation who worshiped this king, to the one whom the New Testament writers, both in Acts and in Hebrews, several times quote Psalm chapter two, and they are talking about none other than Jesus. This was Jesus. Over and over, they look at this, they look at this glorious promise, they know there's only one person that this could ever be about, and it's King Jesus. He's the one that our hearts long for. He's the cosmic ruler, the king of, of all kings, the one true king. He's the true Arthur, the true Aragon. He's the true one who actually has healing in his hands that heals hearts, that binds up the brokenhearted, who gives sight to the blind, who restores family, who finds the one who's lost and brings them back. He's the true king that all of the other myths are but a mere shadow of. Amen. I'm only on my first point. I'm whew, getting a little excited there. Normally you build a little bit anyway. So. And it's interesting that we have these tales, these myths about a king and why we're drawn to them and why we read the stories and watch the movies over and over again. Because when we study history, really the, the history of kings is pretty abysmal. I mean, if you think about it, the, the history of kings is one of, of political corruption, of tyranny, abuse of power, of bankruptcy, of really human limitation. I mean, when we really look at it, the, the chronicles in the Bible of the, the kings of Judah and Israel, it's really kind of a, a, a mess if you think about it. And these were the best of the best. If you look in history at the kings of France or the kings of Germany or the kings of England or the kings anywhere, you realize, man, they, these guys were a mess. So why do we keep believing? Why do we keep going after? Why do we keep seeking after a, a true king? And again, it speaks to this memory trace. It speaks to what is, you know, some call a resonant chord. Some of you who, who play instruments, you know, if you, you strike a G chord over here, it'll kind of reverberate over here. You know, like you strum that chord and the, the, the string that's tuned to that note, it, it starts to vibrate. It's called a resonant chord. And, and when we say that phrase, oh, that resonates with me, what we're saying is something that you've said, it's striking something deep. Something's resonating. My heart's tuned a long time ago and that thing barely moves. But when I hear that, when I see that, something deep within me is being stirred. And so when we think about the king, when we read Psalm 2 and other places, that's why we come alive. That's why we like those stories because we're meant for a king. We're made for a king. This whole world has been given what God says over to a king. The earth is his possession. And as believers who look around at a world that is absolutely in chaos, we're saying, yes, yes, we need a king. Yes, Jesus, come quickly. We need you. We need your kingdom. It's interesting. I was reading a sermon actually from 1993, and the pastor quoted an article from the New York Times, and I thought it was so relevant to today. In this particular uh, 
author, his name was Jeffrey Schmaltz, and I'm not, really not familiar with him, but it was the last article that he wrote for the New York Times as he was suffering with AIDS, and he passed away just a few weeks after writing this. But he says this in his article. He says he, he was embarrassed to admit it, but he admitted it publicly. He said, before the last presidential election, he says, I'm just so embarrassed, I felt that if I could just get a Democrat into the White House, I'd be saved. I looked at this candidate and I said, this is my white knight. These are his words. This will be my savior. He'll get all the resources together. He'll find the cure. And he sadly realized a month later, like all of us realize eventually, what an idiot he had been, how naive he had been. How could he feel that way? Things are never that simple. And he pinned all his hopes on at that time, whatever president was supposed to be elected and it let him down. And, and I read that thinking, man, isn't that so true today? It's this leader. It's this person. If this person gets elected, if this person, if this party, and, and listen, we pray and we desire good, godly leaders that listen to me, but they're not our savior. They're, they're not the ones who are ultimately going to put things right. They continue to let us down. And when I read that, I thought, man, how fitting is that? How has that always been? But the Bible does tell us over and over, the reason why we keep thinking that way is that there really is a white knight. <laughs> there really is a savior who will put everything right. A real ruler who will mete out justice and fairness, who, who will heal all the racial reconciliation, all the uh, socioeconomic divide that exists, all the hatred, all those things he will once and for all settle. There is a true king and every other myth points to him. There is a king who has heard the words, the words from his father, you are my son, today I have begotten you. I have set you on my throne. The ends of the earth are your possession, the father says to Jesus. And we long for that day. We sit here today saying yes, but sadly, when we look at this psalm, we realize that psalm begins in a place that we might not want to look at. It's a, a place that we might want to say, yeah, I see that for other people, but we need to always look at ourselves. Because the psalm actually begins with a, a statement that I, I like to say often when I watch the news. <laughs> when, I, when I see just some of the things that are you know, thrown out there, I just go, why do the nations rage? I just think that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. You, know, you just, you just kind of see it out there. But that's what the narrator's telling us. Why do the nations rage? The people plot a vain thing. Have you ever just thought that? Like, man, not what, vain, empty, foolish thing. Well, why? They're just plotting. And, and what do these kings say, according to the narrator? They're, they're asking that the bonds be torn off, that the cords that they feel so oppressed by would be lifted off from them. They're trying to free themselves. What they feel like is the tyranny of this king. But Spurgeon shows us, and he says this when I was reading, he says, in these verses, we have a description of the hatred of human heart, of the human heart against the nature of, uh, excuse me, the hatred of human nature against Christ of God. He said, what we see here isn't just a picture of kings and nations, but really a picture of all of our hearts, this, this hatred, he would say, this rebellion, this mutiny that we have all committed and this bent to want to be our own kings, to want to call our own shots. Now, when we, if we just simply read this, we might think they had a fair case. Man, they're, they're, they're describing chains and bonds. And as I was reading this week, uh, there was those uh, commentators who knew Hebrew much better than me. They said that second word, cords, is probably much better translated as yoke. And, and so the idea is, is what they're saying is, I don't want your yoke on me. Yoke has the idea of ownership. 
I want to be my own man. I want to be my own woman. I want to call my own shots. I don't want to be owned by anything. You might be creator, but I want to be the captain of my own ship. And really, that's what they are saying. And really, that's what we say all the time when we go our own way. We may not say it as dramatic as they're saying it. We may not set out in our minds to plot, but we're doing that very same thing. I want to be my own man. I want my will to be done. I read this. One of the basic principles of hell is the person who says over and over, I am my own man. It was C.S. Lewis who said this in the, uh, in the Great Divorce. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. The kings of the earth were saying, my will, my will, my will. Eventually God says, fine. And really what hell is, God says, fine, thy will be done. Your whole life is about my will, I'm my own person. God finally says, okay. In Romans chapter one, when you see really this devolution, the rebellion of man and every step along the way where man continues to rebel, it gets worse and worse and worse. What does God finally say? God says, fine. He gives him over to a reprobate mind. He says, fine, just the judgment is simply letting man do what man wants to do. It's like, whoa, that's the scariest thing. Ultimately, that's, that's the conviction of every person who goes to hell. I'm my own man. I want my own way. My own way. It's also the condition that really brings hell into every area of your life. That conviction will bring hell ultimately, but it will bring hell into every relationship, every friendship. If it's all about you and your own way, you're going to be the king, you're going to be in control, you're going to call your own shots. That's the condition really that will bring hell into every area of your life, in your business, in your partnerships, in your friendships. It always will. So many people are saying, I'm the captain of my own ship. Yeah, and you named her Titanic, dude. <laughs> and we have to see this is our bent. We may not want to admit it, but this is what the Bible describes as original sin. Oh, I believe in God, but I, I want to be in control. I know what is best. And most would say, no, I, listen, I don't hate God. I, I'm not at enmity with God. I'm not plotting against God. And a lot of people naively don't really think about that. But the Bible says, no, we are, until we are saved and come to a place, we are enemies of God. And a lot of people don't think they're really plotting against God or they really have a hatred against God because really they've got this God of their own concoction. I don't really believe in a God like that. I believe in a God of love. Listen, I believe in a God of love too, but the only place you find the God of love is actually in the Bible. And the God of love that we find in the Bible is so much more loving than you could ever imagine, but he's also a God of justice. He's a God of fairness. He's a God who, who believes in right and wrong and holy and good and sin. Listen, if you've never really felt the affront against God, then you've never heard the God that we know who thunders from Sinai, be holy for I am holy. Because when you hear that, there's a place where you realize you, you squirm a little bit. They say, oh, no, that's the God of the New Testament. Really? What does Jesus say in the New Testament? Unless you hate mother or father, you have no part of my kingdom. Now, he's not saying literally you have to hate them, but he's saying my, your love for me has to be so much greater. Jesus who says, pick up your cross and follow me. There's no ambiguity. There's no kind of middle ground. Jesus, he divides. And here's the line. He says, you're either for me or you are against me. When you hear that kind of talk, when you come into contact with that kind of God, you realize, no, my, my heart's bent is go, I don't know. You squirm a little bit. I'm not really sure. 
They think of God too often like a partner, like an advisor, but not as a king who possesses all of the earth, who possesses me and my heart and my life and my future. Listen, one of the ways you actually know that you're a Christian, this is going to be interesting. One of the ways you finally realize that you're saved, there's a lot of different ways, but one of the things you actually will realize is that let me put it, you can never be the friend of God until you realize you're an enemy of God. I'll say it again. You're never going to be the friend of God until at one point you realize you're an enemy of God, meaning that you're a sinner, that you are actually opposed and that you need a Savior. And the only way you'll ever realize that is the Holy Spirit has convicted you, has made you aware that you are like these kings in uh, verses 1 through 3, plotting your own course, plotting your own way. That's actually a sign when you realize I've got this bent. When you realize I have this bent, you're actually on the right track. <laughs> when you realize you have this bent like uh, uh, that hymn, um, Come Thou Found. <laughs> Lord, my heart is prone to wander. Lord, I know it, take and seal it. When you realize that, you're actually in a good place because you're saying, Lord, this is my heart. I don't want this to be my heart. Lord, take and seal it. Now, what does God, I just, I, I'm going to make this quick point before I go on to the next one, but what does God think of the kings and uh, one and three who are plotting their ways? It says, it says, God laughs. <laughs> now, it's kind of funny. I remember years ago listening to somebody, and they were saying, God laughs. And I, now, listen, I believe that. When we look at the stories in the Gospels, we, we find stories, and you read the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus was funny. When he talks about a plank in your eye and a speck and all these things, there were, people would have laughed. But the only verse in the Bible that actually says that God laughs, specifically, is here in chapter 2. But the laughter that we read here, is it the kind of laughter that after a knock-knock joke? <laughs> is it the kind of laughter like, oh, no, it's a mocking laughter, right? right? He laughs at them like, are you kidding me? Right. I'm the creator, the sovereign. I'm the one who spans the universe in your hands, and you think you can plot and, and do your own thing. It's just kind of, and it says a, a laughter of derision. It's kind of the laughter of a parent whose kid's just kind of throwing a temper tantrum and things they can do, and you're like, and then you, remember, you just kind of put your hand on the kid's head or something like that. It's kind of like, you kind of laugh. Maybe, uh, maybe that was just me. I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> It's almost that, that idea, just like, God's just like laughing, like, really? Seriously? It's the laughter, because he's not worried, oh, no, what are they going to do? What's going to happen to the world I created? No, God's not like that. God's like, no, I have set my king on, in Zion on my holy hill. God's sovereign. He's in control. He can laugh like that, because he knows the beginning from the end. He knows what will come to pass. Final last point is there's really only blessing. The only blessing is ever found in serving this king. We have to recognize our bent, but we have to come to the place where we serve this king, where we acknowledge this king. It says here in verse 10, that the narrator once again speaks. He says, now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, listen, be wise. Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The kings are summoned. You and I are summoned. And the exhortation is be wise. Serve this king. Rejoice with this king. Kiss the son. There's a true king. There's one way we must respond. And when you do, you'll be blessed. You'll thrive. And what seems like an ultimatum, and it is an ultimatum, listen, is also an invitation. It's a reach of grace. It's an invitation. Come serve this king. Come bow down. There, there's no middle ground. 
You're either for me or you're against me, Jesus says. There's no Switzerland when it comes to God. There's no, oh, well, I'm not on this side or that side. No, you are either for this king, you will either submit to this king now willingly or later by force. And if you serve and rejoice and kiss, you will be blessed. And if you don't, what does it say? You'll perish. Inevitably, you will be destroyed. There's blessing or cursing. Listen, what it says here, it ends with, Find refuge. Blessed are those who find refuge in him. I want to say this. It might be in your notes there. There is no refuge from the king. There is only refuge in the king. Where does, where's refuge found? There's this wrath that's going to be poured out. Where do, the wrath is coming, but how do we find shelter? Where do we run? We actually run into the very king who will pour out his wrath. That's amazing. There's no refuge. You can't run anywhere. The earth is his possession. But we run to him, the righteous run into him, and they are safe. We run to him, and he embraces us. It's the story of the prodigal son, the father kissing, you know, and embracing all these. There's so many image, images and imagery that we see over and over. There's nowhere we can go. Colossians tells us about the cosmic Jesus. Everything was created by him and, and sustained by him. And the only refuge we will ever find is when we run to him. But listen, the king said, I don't want your yoke. I don't want your ownership. But listen, this king, we know what this king says to us. We know what he says about his yoke. King Jesus says, come to me. Tonight, some of you, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. You're burned out. You're weary. You're, you're worn out. You're emotionally exhausted, mentally fatigued, physically just broken, spiritually you're bankrupt. And what does he say? He says, I will give you rest. This king says, take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke upon you. To the king says, I don't want your yoke. Jesus offers. He says, take, receive. You have to receive it. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. What does this king say about himself? He says, for I am gentle and I am humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. He says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, we, we rage against this king because we think we know what he's like. We think he's going to keep us from so many things. And he, Jesus says, no, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When you throw off the, the yoke that I have for you, you end up in frustration. You end up weary and burdened. You end up tired and worn out in every way. But when you actually submit and receive my yoke, there's blessing. There's flourishing. Listen, you and I, we need a king, a true king. We, we have to take his yoke. We have to receive his yoke. Listen, there's something we have to do. He's not going to force it on us. He says, take it. I offer it. I am king, but I'm inviting you by my grace. I'm inviting you in my love to learn of me, to walk with me, to receive my yoke, to submit yourself to my lordship. I don't promise you an easy life, but I promise you an easy yoke, a yoke that everywhere you go, I will be with you. Listen, it's a yoke that brings freedom. We, we throw off his yoke because we think, oh, if I throw this off, I'll really be free. No, to throw it off brings bondage. And we know that. Any of us who have thrown it off and done it our own way, we know it. Inevitably, we're worn out. We're weary. We've just hit rock bottom. And we come to the end of ourselves and we find a savior, a king who says, here, take my yoke. I'm lowly and gentle. It's easy. It's light. It's a way to freedom. Liberation only ever comes from serving the one who made you. 
I read this illustration this week, and it, it was describing learning an instrument. I thought it was a pretty good illustration. You know, when, uh, when you're wanting to learn something, you, like say it's a guitar or a piano, or, or I'll, I'll use another illustration, my, my son Noah, who now is a very good surfer. And when he was young, I tried to get him to surf, and he did not want to do it. There was all kinds of reasons. I think Annie and I ruined all my kids with Shark Week. That's a whole other story. We've, <laughs> we've asked our kids forgiveness many, many times. Uh, when they run into our rooms at night, nightmares of sharks, we realize we probably screwed up as parents, you know? So anyway... <laughs> But eventually, between his summer of his sophomore and junior year, he fell in love. And all of a sudden, he, in a sense, yoked himself. He, he wasn't very good. He could hardly surf. But he yoked himself in the sense that he was disciplined. Every day, he went and went and went. And what was frustrating for him eventually became something that brought freedom, something that he got good at, something that he's actually really good at now. And you can imagine the same illustration, whether it's learning the piano or an instrument where, man, you've got you've to yoke yourself to this thing. You've got to spend hours at it. And at first, it's like, this is hard. I don't really like this. But eventually, it kind of becomes a refuge. For some of you who, who are really good at something, all the years of discipline all of a sudden have provided something that you thought was bondage is now actually is a way of freedom. What was inside of you really wasn't unlocked until there was a discipline, there was a yoke, there was, a, okay, I've got to do this. So now, all of a sudden, that thing that you may have dreaded, all of a sudden, is like, wow, this is actually something I run to. This is something I, I want to do. And you parents know uh, you can try to force your kids to do something, and they do it with, you know, grudgingly. It doesn't really work so well. In fact, it was funny. I was having this conversation with Noah, and he's, he, was, he was really frustrated with himself. He's like, why didn't I start to learn surfing earlier? I could have been so much better. And I kind of cracked up because I had tried to teach him how to surf earlier. And he says, when, I, when I'm a parent, I'm going to make my kids surf. And I just started cracking up. I was like, oh, good luck with that. Like, I tried with you. I said, well, just don't show them Shark Week like I did, you know? <laughs> we know what I'm saying is you have to take the yoke. For it to really bring freedom, you know you, it has to be something you say, yes, I'm going to take this. Yes, this is something I'm going I'm to be part of. My, yes, I need this. I want this. And that's why Jesus says, take my yoke. I'm a king, but I'm a good king. But if you're going to follow me, there's a yoke. I'm going to put it on you. But my, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I walk with you. And listen, the, the very thing I put upon you is not a means to, to bring cords or bondage. It's actually a means to bring you freedom. Every person who is made in the image of God, there is so much potential, but so few people ever realize that potential because they won't take the yoke. Just like there's so many people that you knew in high school that all the potential in the world, but they wouldn't yoke themselves in. They wouldn't yoke themselves to discipline. They wouldn't take it. So they just, that potential just kind of stayed untapped and just kind of, that's all they were is potential. There's a lot of Christians like that that are unwilling to yield and say yes and say yes and say yes, King Jesus, command me. I take your yoke. I, I will go where you want me to go. I will say what you want me to say. I will do what you want me to do because they're afraid if they say yes to that, it's going to take away their freedom instead of realizing no, to say yes to that is to give you all the freedom that God wants to bring into your life. Amen. So tonight, what the Lord would say the king, the king of Psalm 2, the king of the Bible would say, take my yoke, receive my yoke. Tonight that we would say, yes, Jesus, command me. I submit myself to you. I want Camelot. I want Utopia. I want the kingdom that I need the king. So practically, what does this mean? A couple things and we'll close and go into a time of communion. And I love the metaphors that God gives us of our relationship with him. There's the shepherd and we're the sheep. And so it tells us a little bit about our relationship. 
He's the father, we are his sons and daughters, and there's intimacy in what that means. Um, he's our, our husband, we are his bride. There's all these different imagery uh, that God gives us, but he's also the king, and that means we are his subjects. And all of these things give us a picture. Uh, they, they give us an insight of what it means to truly belong to him. And what I ask you tonight is, are you flourishing? Because the, the, the Bible promises here, if we find our refuge in him, there's a blessing. If we're really making him our king, there's a blessing. Blessed are all those who take their refuge or make their refuge in him. Maybe tonight you're going, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian, but man, I, I, I don't know when the last time it was I really felt blessed. I would just ask you this tonight. Is he your king? Not just is he king, but is he your king? Are you treating him as king or is he more like an advisor, a consultant, a business partner? Is he the one calling the shots or are you always the one offering up plans to him and saying, Lord, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that and bless this and bless that? Or are you saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? What is your will? Lead me and guide me. Well, four very practical things of what does it mean to actually treat Jesus as king? Number one, obey. We could say this every week because we need to be reminded of it every week. If he's really king, that means he gives the orders and we obey. Very, very obvious. We obey when it makes sense and even when it doesn't. If we only obey when it makes sense, that's pragmatic. That's not really obeying. To really obey when you may not like it is to obey viewing him as king and you are his subject. That means you obey what he says in the word. When he says, yeah, you need to forgive. I don't want to forgive. No, you need to forgive. When he talks about greed and envy, when he says, your body has been bought with a price, it's not yours to sleep with whomever you wish. It's not yours to watch whatever you want to watch. No, your, your body has, and you have been bought with great price. You belong to me to obey Number two means to submit, to submit the order of your life and how your life is going. It means in the good times and in the bad times. It's like Job saying, naked I came into the world and naked I will leave. You give and take away, but blessed be your name. It's, it's, it's the, the cry of, I don't get this. I don't like it, but I'm going to trust you. And there's times in our life because he is king, we know you are good. I may not understand this. This doesn't seem good, but I submit to you. I trust you. It's really easy to do that when life is going really well, right? But it's tough when life is not going like we expect it, like we want it to. And it's in those times when we really have to buckle down and submit and say, Jesus, you are king. Third thing is we worship. That's what we're doing tonight. It says, kiss the son lest he be angry. You know, on one hand, that obviously speaks of that imagery of, you know, the, 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 the sovereign holding out his hand and you'd kiss it, you were, you were giving your allegiance. And of course it means that. But it's also the language that the Bible uses over and over and it speaks of affection. Because we, we have the stories in the New Testament of the father lavishing kisses upon the, the son. It's the, it's the language of great emotion. It's the language of worship. It's, it's, it's moving, yes, there's duty, but also into delight. That Yes, you are my king. You're the king of my heart. We sang it several times. It was so great. I don't think Kayla had written anything down, but the spirit inspired. We sang a lot of songs about our king. It was awesome. I was like, yes, yes, amen. Jesus is our king, and we gladly worship him. Finally, we obey, we submit, we worship, and we expect. That's what I want to say to you tonight. Because he's our king, we with trembling. He is a good king, and we can expect him to keep his word. We can expect him to always do what is good, true, and right. We should, listen, we should be those who are ever optimistic, 
who are always full of hope, that there's always a blessing to be claimed because God promises it. Listen, your life, my life, for those who say yes to the Lord, you are Savior, you are King, our life is hid in Him. And no matter what is going on in this world, we know He is on the throne, He is in control, He is coming back. And the blessing is we are in Him. We are in Him, amen. The blessedness of Psalm 1 talks about being a tree planted by the water. The blessing of Psalm 2, it ends here, is about submitting ourselves to this cosmic, universal, and eternal King. When we submit our lives to Him, to those who do, one day we will stand in this King's presence and we'll receive the praise from the praiseworthy as we most desire to hear, well done, thy good and faithful servant. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.